Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship program. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. The Family Office World takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold. One, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Well, I'm thrilled today to be with somebody who I consider a friend and probably, in my opinion, at least the top estate planning attorney in the country. Tom Handler is an advanced planning attorney focused on the analysis of structuring of sophisticated estate plans and family offices and handling taxation, business planning issues for business owners, executives, professional athletes, celebrities, and family offices. He has extensive experience in the analysis, design, and implementation of domestic and international business planning, financial and estate planning, asset protection, family office compliance, and advanced tax planning strategies. Mr. Handler is a managing partner in Handler Thayer, where he chairs the firm's advanced planning and family office practice group. His expertise, his experience includes public accounting and corporate and foundation directorships. He's involved in Chicago Bar Association activities, including its taxation and trust law committees, and has authored numerous professional articles. He has lectured extensively both nationally and internationally at wealth industry conferences, professional and family office educational conferences. Mr. Handler created the Asset Protection Profile, which is trademarked, and Stealth Prenup, also trademarked, in addition to other proprietary strategies for affluent families and family offices. Mr. Handler has been named to the Wealth Strategies Design Team comprised of 15 of the top wealth planners in the U.S., the City Wealth Global Leaders List of Top 100 Attorneys in the U.S., Who's Who in American Law and Who's Who in America, Illinois leading lawyers named Mr. Handler, one of the top lawyers in the areas of closely and privately held business law and trust. Mr. Handler is one of the top lawyers in the area of closely and privately held business law and trust, will and estate planning law. In 2017, he received the Family Wealth Alliance Leadership Award for Lifetime Achievement and was again named one of the leading lawyers and lawyers of distinction. He was named 2017 Private Client Lawyer of the Year and 2016 
won the Excellence in Estate Planning Award. In 2015, he was named International Wealth Planner of the Year and Wealth Planning Game Changer Lawyer of the Year, in addition to receiving the Michael J. Brink Wealth Industry Leadership Award and Lifetime Service. Tom earned his Bachelor in Science and Accountancy degree from University of Illinois at Urbana, Champaign, and a JD from DePaul University. Mr. Handler is a recognized thought leader in advanced planning, family office marketplace, who has been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, Worth Magazine, Financial Times, Barron's, Family Office Review, Los Angeles Review, Las Vegas Review, Chicago Sun-Times, and many other papers. He's appeared as an expert commentator on numerous radio and television programs. So basically, he's done a lot and he's accomplished a hell of a lot. Tom, I'm thrilled to have you here. Ron, thank you for having me, and I'm very pleased to see that my mother's write-up was put to good use. Your mother's write-up was very good. Actually, I'm looking, I'm looking <laughs> at this, and I'm reading it. I'm like, I want to read this to my mom, and this is, I want this to be my bio. In any event, you know, I've gotten a chance to know you well because we speak at a lot of the same family office conferences, and I have told people, um, you know, what's interesting is at these conferences, you have a lot of people who speak. You're one of the few people who go to the, when people go to the conferences, it's not that they don't listen to people, but after, the, after your talks, people will stand in line and talk to you and ask you questions. So before we dive into everything, um, let me ask you a question, which I kind of ask everybody, because there is no right answer for this. What is a family office? <clears throat> That's a very good question. Um, I think from my vantage point, uh, a family office should be a legally organized enterprise that looks out for the long-term wealth management, preservation, and enhancement of a proprietary family. And I think that it has emerged, particularly in the last 10 years, as the global best-in-class strategy to accomplish those objectives. So I believe these enterprises are compelling, relatively instrumental, they inordinately affect the control, the succession, the emergency planning, the transition of families. I think they could be involved in establishing and maintaining the family culture, family education, and play a significant role in not only investment management, but in the tax planning, estate planning, asset protection planning, premarital planning, and, and other critical financial and risk management objectives you know, held by families. So I am a large fan of these enterprises. And I think uh, when they're put in place, even not all that well, they can do really good things. And when they're done elegantly, they're incredibly impactful. Terrific. It's a, actually, that's a great explanation. So across your client network, what do you see are the most critical initiatives that family offices are most focused on now? Well, I think there are a number of major things that, that families are working on. Uh, you know, driven by recent changes and what's happening. And so there's a, a focus on legal structure and compliance, you know, driven in part by changes in the law and Dodd-Frank, Fatkin, relatively recent uh, new laws. Changes put in place by the most recent tax acts, some recent cases that came down, and then the attempts to, you know, as ongoing attempts to comply with federal laws. But I think the concept of achieving an appropriate structure and legal compliance have moved way up on the priority ladder in large measure because it's been on the radar screen and people are aware of it. I think that Dodd-Frank in particular 
highlighted uh, the requirements to be a qualified family office and to fit within an exception that does not require the family to register as either a registered investment advisor or a broker-dealer or perhaps local registration under state securities laws or with the CFTC. Uh, and that was sort of the first uh, first major change in recent years that impacted these families and required um, you know, some effort and, and thought to put it in place. And then in addition, given the dramatic changes in the tax and estate laws over the years, most existing family offices that haven't been put in place in the last five years are, are they're not updated, so they're fairly out of date. Most of the early family offices were not integrated or part of a comprehensive game plan. They were put in for a purpose and, and often by a, a someone with a single discipline not looking to the other areas. And so they are typically attended with risk management problems, you know, income tax leakage, estate tax leakage, and other other uh, financial objectives that can be rectified if done properly. So as a general rule, most of the family offices out there are not set up in, a, in an optimized manner designed to capture the, the biggest opportunities. And I think that uh, through the associations and some of the publications and conferences, families have increasingly become aware of that and more and more are uh, currently looking at these issues and trying to become compliant and more efficient from a tax and estate standpoint. And, and along that line, uh, we were asked the question a couple of years ago, shortly after Dodd-Frank and then FATCA kicked in about yeah, how many of the family offices we work with are in compliance with these various laws. And, and our guesstimate was about 40%. We subsequently talked to two other firms involved in the space and their estimate was over 50%. So if we are correct, uh, it appears the level of non-compliance is relatively high. And I think a lot of it is wishful thinking on the part of the families, hoping, well, this can't possibly apply to us, when unfortunately it, it sometimes does. Even under FATCA, many families with international touches or operations uh, have to register as a foreign financial institution, and uh, they're unaware of that or, or haven't done it because it's relatively new. So I think there are a lot of nuances out there. That families are not aware of. And then in going through the process of analyzing families to determine either whether they were exempt under the Dodd-Frank requirements or required registration, we found lots of instances of other securities non-compliance where they, were, they should have been registered with the CFTC and they were not, or they had pool registration or, or various filings for block transactions or other things that they weren't intentionally disregarding, they were simply unaware that the regulations applied to them and that they were required to file. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, in a lot of the family offices, some of the families will use their existing attorney that they've used for years, and they're not specifically an estate planning attorney focusing on family offices. And I've seen you're being able to help families look at things just through a different lens. So my next question for you is, you had mentioned the ta new tax act. So what provisions of the new tax act with TCJA are families dealing with now and why? Well, I suppose there are several major issues. The first one might be that under previous law, a whole series of deductions that I'll pull into the category of for the production or preservation of income 
uh, commonly referred to by professionals as Section 212 expenses. In the past, those expenses were difficult to get for high net worth families because they're subject to an adjusted gross income limitation. They're further than subject to aggregation with other itemized deduction. The Pease Amendment can water them down further. Because of where they're taken on a tax return, on the federal tax return, most states who have an income tax or something like an income tax begin with either adjusted gross income or modified adjusted gross income. And as a result, these deductions did not offset state income taxes. So they were elusive, difficult to get, and subject to levels of disallowance in the past. But with the passage of the TCJA, the deductions are gone. The provision is supposed to sunset in 2025 when theoretically these deductions will come back. Most, I should say most, many practitioners think they're not coming back. It's probably too early to tell, but they're certainly gone until 2025. Examples of these expenses, about 50 expenses, and they apply to almost all families, a whole category of investment expenses, investment advisory, investment research, investment due diligence, investment management fees, investment trips, investment research, investment conferences, seminars, newspapers, publications, investment litigation, security litigation, litigation to recover you know, dividends or lost profits, uh, all sorts of tax expenses, uh, state tax planning, input tax planning, gift tax planning, GST tax planning, tax preparation, tax audits, tax litigation, and safe deposit box, preparation of net worth statements, asset protection planning, premarital planning, all of those financial type expenses are gone. And so one of the keys is that a legitimate family office enterprise is a business and those expenses are not disallowed for that business enterprise, whereas individuals cannot get those expenses. So whether they fall into family holding companies or trusts or host of other enterprises, they all flow through all those conduits. They end up on the same place on a Schedule A as a miscellaneous itemized deduction where they are completely disallowed. So they've disappeared off the radar screen, and one of the ways to get them is in a well-structured family office. So most of the existing offices, the vast majority, were not structured to take advantage of these deductions. And by restructuring, reorganizing, changing the nature of compensation, the agreements, and the relationships between family holding companies, trusts, and family offices, these deductions can be saved and they're quite meaningful. Uh, we just met with one family uh, and the magnitude of these deductions that they're losing is about a million six a year. So they already lost them for 2018 because they didn't restructure and the cost of restructuring will probably be about a quarter million they would have saved that five or six times over in the first year, as well as picked up, you know, additional benefits as, you know, better asset protection, better premarital planning, better integration, so on and so forth. So that's a significant one. And then I think in addition, uh, the act changed some of the categories for where the business taxes are lower than individual taxes. And so now you have to carefully look at, you know, should you be in a, a C corporation versus an LLC or an S-Corp or some other conduit enterprise. And so unless you're in a category that is ineligible for the new 20% rate, a lot of restructuring is going on uh, to allow operating companies and businesses, including family offices, to fall into those lower rate structures if it makes sense. So a lot of that is going on. And then finally, people are 
trying to plan with the new estate exemption. So the, the previous exemption of just over $5 million being indexed that got put in place uh, during the Obama administration, that was the highest by far in history. And the new exemptions are more than double that. So it's $11 million plus and it's indexed. So it's a very, very substantial lifetime estate tax exclusion amount that we now have to work with. Many practitioners don't believe that that amount will survive the next election or perhaps the election after that. I, I'm not going to pull out my crystal ball and, and guess, but it certainly is a generous uh, exemption. And my sense is that the assault on the top 1% is re reaching feverish pitch. The top 1% has paid more income tax almost every year since World War II. And there isn't a big lobby out there. And so in some cases, they're being vilified and uh, being, being made to feel like they're not paying their fair share when, in fact, they're paying a wildly inordinate amount of all taxes. And so the, the future of this exemption is at risk. And then in addition, we had a rising interest rate environment that has tapered off some. But many of the most compelling estate tax transfer strategies involve use of leverage and uh, interest, they're susceptible to interest rates. So every time these rates tick up, uh, it could be a $10 million cost to your grandchildren by not, act, by, by not acting sooner rather than later. So we suggested to clients starting last year, if you haven't fully utilized the full amount of the new exclusion amount, do so uh, immediately. And there are some ways to do that that are much more impactful than others. And so the uh, you know, the most impactful strategies involved uh, discounting the underlying assets and then conducting investment banking transactions among family enterprises to sell or transfer those assets at a discount and pay for them with uh, low IRS interest loans, which have the impact of freezing the asset, moving the discounted amount out, and then either the future appreciation or all the appreciation above the AFR interest rate is, is out of the estate. So in those kind of transactions, you know, we've seen transfers of $150 million with no estate or gift tax consequence, again, depending on the underlying assets, the discounts applicable and the interest rates. So that's, a, uh, that's in full force right now. Families are analyzing uh, those kind of transactions and considering affecting them. And uh, my, my advice would be, I think smart poker would dictate not waiting till after the election to determine whether to do this, but getting it done sooner, remove the assets from the estate, eliminate the risk, and take advantage of what are still historically low interest rates uh, before they tick up in the future. And, and that's an additional risk that will water down the in, most impactful nature of these transactions. Now, I remember the last conference that we were at together, and you had spoken about the lender case. Can you take just 30 seconds and, and explain what the lender case was and how the lender case influenced advanced planning and existing family office structures? Because this is pretty big in your world. It is. And it really highlighted to CPAs and lawyers that, that don't spend much time in the family office space that there are some good opportunities here. So let me begin by saying that we've seen just over 20 audits among our client base and of deductions in the family office enterprise. And we've never seen a disallowance. So we've never had a dime disallowed. And we've spoken with you know, the final four accounting firms and some other large nationwide accounting firms, several of the largest law firms that are involved in this space and other firms similar to us. And no one's ever seen a disallowance. So there, there's no record 
of these kind of deductions inside the family office ever being limited. So I got a call a few, you know, a number of years ago by a multifamily office who was working with the lender family, and it was not a structure that we did, and it's not a structure I would have recommended at the time. But the structure put in place used a limited liability company, and it was an investment-only enterprise. One of the key elements of the facts of the lender case was that the family had two or three generations involved, including family members who didn't like the investment management or weren't happy with it, and in some cases were adverse. They had different interests. The family didn't, you know, and everyone got along, was on the same page. So there were clear facts showing that there were some adverse interests and that this thing was operating very much like a real business where every client has its own objectives. And so uh, in the case, the IRS focused on business purpose and after a very long period of time uh, ended up finding for the lender family and their deductions for investment expenses were allowed. Uh, so that was the first case that anybody can point to where the IRS attempted to disallow some of these deductions, and it was unsuccessful. Uh, there's a case pending right now <clears throat> involving similar issues. We don't know how that's going to uh, turn out, but at least that one's out there. So there, there's very little out there. There's not a lot of precedent, but at least this would seem to tell you that where you've got more than one generation and you're actually managing the money uh, in a business-like manner, charging reasonable, ordinary, and necessary fees, uh, that at least under those facts, the deductions will be upheld. So this is saying to a lot of people, well, this is a good thing. Let's jump in here and, and do this. I don't know that that's the case. I think if you've got good facts and it makes sense and you would otherwise qualify as a family office, you know, that is the right thing to do. My fear is that people are going to jump in that probably shouldn't and their facts are not going to be as good or supportable. That being said, uh, the structure that we would advocate is much more robust and not limited to investment only, and we use different structures, LLCs, S-Corps, C-Corporations, to affect the family office objectives, but Lender was really an eye-opener and an indication to people that you know this could be done, and here's one of the ways that it could do it. So it at least provides some rules, by the time this law fully shakes out, it could be 10 or 15 years down the road. You know, one case does not make the law, but at least there's some facts out there and guidelines for people to follow to get a sense of what, what will work. And it also gives you a little bit of insight into the IRS thinking, whether they're right or not remains to be seen, but it gives you a sense of where they are right now and what they're, what they're trying to do uh, to uh, you know, make sure that these, these enterprises are real businesses. Sure. So with the new tax act in the lender case, what does this mean for embedded family offices? I think there are embedded family offices, which are in effect people working in one of the family operating companies or the primary operating company. And although they're paid by the operating company, they're doing personal work for the family like they would in a family office. So they could be doing contracts and wills and trusts for the principals. They could be doing the tax returns for the family members. You could have secretary booking reservations and planning vacations or scheduling vacation homes or planes or boats. And so whenever people in an operating business are doing things for 
normally personal items for a family member, they're not really deductible in that business enterprise. And worse, if the business has shareholders or a venture capital firm or a banker, you're violating those agreements. You're breaching fiduciary duties. You're using business resources, people for personal purposes, which are not authorized. And by doing that, you're limiting the amount to be available for employee bonuses and arguably violating Department of Labor standards and employment agreements, uh, violations of ERISA, because those monies could be used to pay pensions. And so in order for that family to clean that all up, they've got to very carefully account for the hours, have the operating company charge the family to recover that money, as otherwise it's arguably a theft crime. And so when, when families and family businesses are relatively small, this is often how they start out. You know, the secretary starts making the vacation plans and booking personal dinner reservations and picking up the dry cleaning and the in-house accountants doing the books for the family and preparing their tax returns and the in-house lawyer did the wills and the leases for the college kids. That all seems very innocent. When all the shareholders are family members, there's no debt, there's no venture capital people, there's no outsiders, there's no pension plan other than family members, it's not really a problem. And if it's done well, you know, you're not going to end up breaching duties and and failing to meet your legal obligations. But the more complex the enterprise becomes, it becomes very difficult or impossible in some cases to maintain all your duties and, and adhere to all the requirements. And so best practices, in my opinion, would clearly say that should absolutely be a separate enterprise formed as a legal enterprise. And if it's using business people or employees or resources or cars or offices or storage facilities for the family's personal investment financial purposes, then that enterprise ought to pay for it and reimburse the family companies. So you can still use those employees and you can still do that, but now all the activities captured in the separate enterprise where it's properly deductible, it's not deductible in the family business. So when you go to sell that business or go public or sell to a sophisticated buyer, you know, you're typically going to have to sign standard representations and warranties, which of course you can't sign without perjuring yourself. You can't say, I didn't violate ERISA, you did. I didn't breach my duties, you did. I didn't use business assets for personal purpose, I did. So unless you, you really are very, very careful at uh, picking up every nickel and dime and accounting for it and paying it back, which is tough to do, that's just not a good idea. And I've heard estimates that as high as 25% of the operating family offices in the US are de facto embedded family offices. And my guess, based on our experience with families in Asia, most are embedded family offices. They are in the operating companies, even though there's millions of shareholders. These are huge public global companies, and they still have the employees doing all the things for the family. So it's been a common practice. I think as time goes on, it'll become less acceptable. And I think that the difficulty of handling the accounting in the embedded family office makes it much more likely of a mistake or a blow. And if this sees the light of day, this is a horrible thing for the family's reputation. It could either hurt the price on a sale or public offering or prohibit it altogether and uh, make the family look bad when certainly, you know, these things tend not to be intentional and they can be cleaned up fairly easily. So using a family office or even a virtual family office, in this case, a separate legal enterprise as a defensive measure to protect against all these various breaches and problems makes it much easier to sell the business, much less likely to have a, an event that's going to have a very adverse publicity effect for the family and or its business or foundation, and it help, helps assure compliance. 
Got it. And are you still seeing families and their advisors struggling with things like securities, CFTC, Dodd-Frank issues, and compliances? Absolutely. Again, I think a lot of families just chose to believe that the SEC couldn't possibly mean this applies to us when it does. And I've said this in a number of uh, events that I think the biggest offenders, not intentionally, are the real estate families. You know, they're doing deals with their families, and in many cases, they're they're absolutely playing the role of broker dealer. In other cases, you know, they're they're functioning like an RIA, and pretty much with reckless disregard for the rules. So I think that any family leading the charge on a project or a direct deal runs the risk of being the promoter uh, with securities obligations. Of course, if you violate securities law, you know, the most common remedy is rescission, which means if the deal works, everyone's happy. If the deal doesn't work, the the aggrieved investor may have a right to get his money back. What's a win-win for the investor? So that's a bad spot to be in for the person running the deal. So you've, you've got that going on and where the lines are drawn isn't all that clear. The dilemma is that the SEC very broadly construes these rules and their opinion, I can assure you, the majority of these folks, you know, would be would be required to register as a broker dealer or an RIA with the SEC. And then secondly, some of the more minor provisions, you know, blocks of security and other rules that require, you know, quarterly filings, either families aren't aware they have to do them or they're doing them and having difficulty because the, the various parties reporting them you know, are blowing the calculations, which are not easy, frankly. And so there's some measure of complexity here for, you know, families, with a lot of assets under management, and uh, they tend not to have enough people to handle these things. And again, the SEC put these rules in place, and to some extent, the families are have got uh, reporting requirements, you know, like you'd expect of a broker-dealer, but the broker-dealers have compliance people and in-house professionals, and the family offices tend to be a little bit more thinly staffed, and this is a, a huge use of time of their personnel in order to comply with these things. And I think then, you know, CFTC and state securities agencies, same thing. Uh, people aren't intentionally disregarding those rules, I don't think. I I believe they just aren't aware that they can't apply to them. So I think the the moral of the story here is that when in doubt, you know, consult Securities Council. And for those families that did not get an opinion that they do not have to register under Dodd Frank, they certainly should consider getting one and keeping it in their file so that if somewhere down the road something comes up and it's determined that they should have registered and filed, that at least they can show a good faith attempt to comply which would go a long way toward avoiding, avoiding prosecution or huge penalties and, and a bad uh, publicity effect as well. Sure. You've got so many tools in your tool chest, but if you had to look at it, what are the most impactful estate planning recommendations that you're now making and that you feel are best for your clients? Sure. Well, you know, we, we spent a lot of time in 2012 when the law was changing to because the fear was that the, the, the exemption, the exclusion amount, which most people just refer to, refer to as an estate exemption, was going to go down or disappear. And so everyone was making very large transfers. So we put together a team and said, okay, what is the absolute optimized way to make the largest transfer possible with little tax risk? And we went through a whole scenario of things. And, and to cut to the chase, uh, the most impactful strategies use discounting afforded by family holding companies combined with investment banking transactions 
and using AFR low IRS rate debt in order to transfer assets immediately due to the discount and purchase them if need be, and then have a fairly low income stream coming back to the enterprise owned or controlled by the older generation to get the maximum transfers. And that's where you know some of these transfers involved 125 to 150 million dollars in one fell swoop. I think that the tools to do this are are well known now, though I remember 20 years ago hearing lots of CPAs and lawyers, you know, telling us that using grant to retain annuity trust called GRATS or GRITS or GRUTS before that, or using uh, sales to intentionally defective trusts, you know, were extremely risky and shouldn't be done and so on and so forth. And as it turns out, they weren't risky. It would be hard to make a mistake. It's possible. There are some more risks with using uh, intentionally defective trust in the sale transactions, uh, but we've never had a single disallowance uh, in the history of our firm, and I know others have never had a disallowance. So I think if if they're done in a professional manner, those transactions work and they're done across the marketplace and, and they're fairly common. But doing it at the highest level to affect transfers for families worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars requires a lot more art and, and more specificity. So to start with, those grats and sale transactions are typically done using the family stock. They'll use the stock of the public company or the stock of the family business or the, the most precious assets. The dilemma, of course, is if these transactions work, those assets are gone. They're in the hands of whoever you transfer them to, which could be you know, trust for minor children, grandchildren, whoever. And a number of our clients uh, who didn't follow our advice uh, did just that and ended up with, uh, you know, two, two 16-month-old children uh, with over a billion each in their trust because the company went public and exceeded everyone's expectation. And the dilemma is because they use the actual stock of the public company, it would, at age 18, the children could take over the company, vote their father off the board, drop out of college, buy Ferraris, and fire their dad. Now, that sounds pretty silly. Uh, however, we've actually seen it happen. We, we saw the children and brother kick the CEO founder of the, the largest public company in space off the board of his own company, take control because he transferred the stock outright so they could vote it. So we call those naked naked transfers, naked grads, or naked intentionally defective trust sales. And the way to avoid that is to first put the asset inside of a family holding company, which could be a family limited partnership, a family limited liability company, a series family limited liability company. In Canada, these would be LLPs and similar enterprises in other, in other countries that function the same way. They're conduits where you have uh, no personal legal liability for the activities. And in that manner, you can put the stock inside those family holding companies, transfer the holding company interests at a discount, and the discounts have been substantial. They have seen them range from 15% to 77%, which actually got upheld by the IRS, uh, even though I told the client not to take it because it looked too high for me, but I'm not the valuation expert. That's what the firm provided. So the discounts tend to be more in the you know, 30 to 40% range. But in any event, that discount allows a very significant transfer at day one. All that future appreciation is out of the estate. But when 
the children reach the age of majority or have the right to become their own trustee or take control of this, all they have is an interest in the family holding company, which they don't vote, they don't control, they can't kick you off the board of your own company, they can't buy Ferraris and drop out of school, they don't have those options because there's still control of the managing member or general partner, which in an integrated structure is the family office enterprise. So increasingly in the last 10 years, the family offices are playing those roles and serving as a general partner or managing member. So it controls those decisions, not the family members who receive the assets. And the same thing is true of, of the grads. When the grads conclude, they roll over into another trust and aren't into the control. And even in that trust, it's still a family holding company interest and not of the actual stock. So that apparently is hard for clients to understand because we've had a number of clients disregard the advice and it turned out disastrous a number of years later when the children got control, either because they got divorced or were sued or had a substance abuse problem or whatever it might be. You don't know what the future risks are going to be, but you have a sense of best practices and best practices would say, let's control in that, in the, in that entity. Let's, let's use an asset-protected version of that entity as much as possible. And let's protect the family from spurious lawsuits and slip and falls and bad players out there who may come after you that's playing much better poker, keeping them from abusing the older generations, which you'd never want to see. No child or, or no parent ever wants to go to his children and say, I'm in trouble. Can I have some of my own money back? Uh, I've had the children generation say, you know, tough week, dad. I don't think I can do it. That's a bad spot to be in. So being smart and having, helping the children become empowered and not entitled is all part of using these structures. So while you're affecting these very compelling income tax and state tax strategies, keep in mind, you're going to affect the family culture. You're going to affect the lives of these people. You're going to affect whether the children are empowered or entitled. The safety of the, of the parent generation or grandparent generation that made the transfers, all those things should be taken into account. And too often, the whole focus is on the tax and not enough on the family and their life. So if you look at the current economic and political environment, which is very unique, how have families been responding with things such as asset protection, risk management, and even premarital planning tax strategies? Sure. Well, I, I think that uh, in the last few years, you know, so, so both during Obama's term and during Trump's term, uh, it's been very polarizing. Uh, I think that Obama was the most polarizing voter of anybody in the Senate and then couldn't understand why people would move to his side of the aisle or go to the middle when he became president. Pretty understandable. And the same thing with Trump. You know, he's, he doesn't play well with the other side. So you've had two people who, who uh, tend to polarize thought. And at the same time, uh, and this goes back maybe 20 plus years, the, the vilification of the affluent, the top 1% in particular, is just in full swing. And so this environment is very troubling to people. And anybody who's you know historically watched this and understands economics can see it's a problem. So I think the top 1% are afraid, and, and rightfully so. And then combine it with you know cyber hacking, cyber terrorism, hostage and kidnap, con artists, con artists thieves, identity theft, wire theft, social security card theft, I mean, you name it. We've had all those things happen to our client base in the last two years, and the incidence is very significant. And so I think families are correct in identifying that they are targets in the current environment. 
And you, we've been able to tell this because of the inbound traffic, the inbound calls. And so in the last 10 years, we've seen a significant uptick in inquiries regarding asset protection in general, asset protection trusts in particular, premarital planning, uh, avoiding legal liabilities, uh, captive insurance companies, special risk policies, uh, umbrella policies, and really anything that would help to minimize the risk profile of family and put them in a position, a better position to live and fight another day. So in particular, uh, domestic ash protection trusts have probably quadrupled in the last 10 years. And I think these will be very effective, although there's very little case law about them. You know, they will not stop the U.S. government, which is a problem because it's a very formidable plaintiff for anyone who's been involved in the government proceeding. And you tend to have, you know, junior or young people with little supervision or oversight, tremendous power, tremendous discretion, and unlimited budgets because they're fighting you with your own money. So it's very difficult to be in these government proceedings. And in many of them, the business owner or the family, it's like you're, you're guilty until you extricate yourself. So the, the burden is almost on you to prove you're not there. Uh, and your appeals down the road once the agency's done with you. So I've worked on a number of these matters with families and had uh, an SEC matter, a class action, an FTC proceeding, bankrupt families with hundreds of millions of dollars. It wasn't right. It was overblown. I think it was a giant mistake, but it happened. Right? And so those, the families who've had dealings with major government agencies uh, are aware of those risks. And all it takes is these large lawsuits. So at the same time, uh, the divorce laws and child custody laws have been changing and evolving. So the trend is that, you know, child support is going up. Uh, alimony is no longer deductible, so it's much, much more expensive than it was previously. The term of alimony around the country previously was about one-third the term of the marriage. So if you were married for 30 years, you might pay alimony for 10 years. Now the norm is more half. States like Florida and California have made it perpetual. You marry someone for three years, you get alimony for life. That's a heck of a deal. And the alimony uh, sometimes is, you know, the the, your th the average of your three highest years or earnings, you know, in perpetuity to the other party. And uh, it's it's really becoming a very significant risk. And then further, a number of cases have invaded non-marital property and taken it out of trusts where it is, in my opinion, clearly non-marital property. Uh, it may be a violation of the Constitution and, and common law both, but they've done it and throw those assets back in the marital estate. So when you put all this together, it says the family, one, you know, one leg of the stool is we better get some pretty good insurance to lay all this stuff out. Secondly, you know, those conduct protocols that the big and established families have been around for generations have had, we should start looking at those things, even simple things. Like, you know, the 16-year-old doesn't get to drive with passengers till after the first year. You know, no phone in the car. Uh, you don't leave the children, high school kids at the uh, beach house with a bunch of jet skis and a refrigerator full of beer. Uh, you don't throw a party without dram shop insurance and a security person to make sure there's no underage people or, or problems. So, you know, all those kinds of things that, that are very business-like, families are adopting those procedures to protect themselves. Those conduct protocols, either very simple, which might be said are common sense, to very sophisticated, who gets to do what and when, when does the compound get used, who gets to, you know, use different assets of the family can be very detailed. But any, anything in that direction, I think, is a step 
uh, toward minimizing risks and liabilities. And then asset protection, really looking for a start over fund that if something goes really sideways, we'll have something left over. Insurances, all the different coverages, and then premarital planning, because divorce is very foreseeable and it's a, it's a big hit. It's 50% in most places. In false states, it could be as much as 90% if children are involved. Uh, and and uh, I, I used to say 50 to 70, and a South Carolina, South Carolina attorney showed me a case where it was about 90%. So it ranges, but it's a, it's a significant loss event. So when you put this all together, I think families are correct in sensing the environment they're in. And when a family like this is in front of a jury, most of whom will be blue-collar people without jobs, chances of getting a fair shake might not be so good because those people are likely to be biased against this very wealthy family. And a deep pocket, it's like, well, how can it hurt those people? They're going to be good anyway. Let's give a bunch of money away and take it from them. Nobody remembers you know, that, that, that that guy worked 70 hours a week, took risks, went bankrupt twice, and his first family left him before he finally you know, made money. It's not as easy as it looks. Uh, but the juries aren't aware of that. And the media furthers that portrayal. The net result of all this is that I think families really are at risk. And if they aren't undergoing significant thought processes and being very formal and almost going through checklists to eliminate risks, uh, they're likely to find themselves dealing with them. Well, Tom, this has been terrific. I could go on literally for a day or two because there's so many complexities in, in what you do. I think what you've done in, in the family office world is you've shown you're a thought leader and you've been very helpful to a lot of family offices, especially at a lot of these conferences that you speak at, making taking very, very complicated situations and really simplifying them in a way that a non-attorney could, could understand it. So I think you've been fabulous for the family office ecosystem. And I'm very fortunate that you know I've had an opportunity to spend a lot of time with you. Last question, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Sure. So I'm based out of our Chicago office, which is our main office. That number is 312-641-2100. And I have an assistant. If uh, I'm not there, we'll take the message and track me down as appropriate. But Ron, you've been very kind. I appreciate your, your generous comments. And I enjoyed chatting about these subjects. Tom, thank you very much. You're terrific. And uh, look forward to seeing you at the next conference. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.